So, you know, we are a, a society of extremes. When we determine that something might be bad for us, we try and eliminate it completely, right? So, you know, the thought that fat might not be good for you in your food. So we try and eliminate all fat, right? And get rid of it. So we got all these fat-free products. But it goes to, you know, we find out that, you know, fat is actually good for you. It's used for energy to be stored in your body. That fatty acids are for health and nutrients of your cells. It, it uh, helps for proper nerve and brain function. And it helps with your skin. We need fat in our diet. We can't eliminate it completely and be healthy. And then there's cholesterol, right? We're afraid that cholesterol might clog up our arteries. And so we eliminate foods like like eggs that are that are high in cholesterol. But then you go to find out that there are two types of cholesterol, right? LDL, which I guess stands for low-density lipoproteins, and then there's HDL, which is high-density lipoproteins, I guess, which are good for you. We need cholesterol, and we need foods like eggs that are high in protein and things like that. And then there's just the whole issue of germs, right? Uh, especially during this season, we're very sensitive about you know, germs and bacteria, you know. And, you know, truthfully, I'm grateful for Germex, you know, especially when people come in with colds and things of that nature, and, and that's all fine. And, and we kill, you know, things with, with antibiotics, but we can't kill all bacteria. You know, and if you ever had that experience where you've, you've taken antibiotics to the point where it's killed all the bacteria in your body and you, it's just stuff is flushing through you, you know what I'm saying? That's because there's no bacteria. <laughs> is it just me? Feeling very lonely up here at this moment. My point is, is that we need, we need bacteria to help us digest our food. And it helps build our immune system. And if we were living in a completely sterile, sterile um, environment, we would be more weak and more susceptible rather than having our immunities build up. So as we've been going through this series lately in First Corinthians, we've been talking about the issue of sexual immorality. And we've dealt so far with issues like and sexual immorality is not what God intended for sex. That was incest and adultery and homosexuality and prostitution and all those things. Sex outside of marriage comes under the category in Greek called porneia. That is a perversion or not what God intended for sex. It can lead to a truckload of relational pain as well, not to mention physical consequences. So with all these problems with an over-sexualized society, wouldn't it be better just to eliminate sex altogether? I mean, why not just focus on the eternal rather than that's a, that which is a, this temporal? I mean, you know, Jesus himself said, we're not going to be married in heaven. We're going to be like the angels. Why not get a head start and eliminate just all temptation of the flesh? Well, first of all, God created sex. And he said, good. And he put it in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. It's designed to create life. It's designed to be pleasurable. It creates bonds and intimacy. It's a balm and a salve in marriage for the rough road of life together sometimes. It's also to be a reflection of Jesus and his church. 
can also be a deterrent against sexual immorality. It ultimately is an expression of our holy sexuality unto God himself. And that's what we're going to be looking into God's word about today. If you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to Ephesians, not Ephesians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick things up here. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians here. Now, for the matters which you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, and another that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and look at what God has for us. Indeed, this is your word, Lord. Inspired, God-breathed to us. It is for our good, for our spiritual health, for wisdom, for life and godliness. So, Lord, as we look into this, in an area that's very personal to so many of us, would you give us grace to receive what you have for us? And that this would be an encouraging time in your word, build marriages, and build our commitment to you to be a people that are sexually pure as a human. So we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray these things. So again, last week we were in chapter 6, and we were at the end, and Paul was talking about why sexual immorality is improper for the believer, for the follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, that the physical body which God was going to raise from the dead was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord himself. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually become one with him as a representative of, of his body. You are Jesus's. And then when just the fact that there's a, a spiritual principle of the two become flesh, if you're going to enter into sexual immorality, such as a relationship with a, a prostitute, you're bringing Jesus into that. That is not proper. That's not right. And even more so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. You have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You desecrate the Holy Spirit's temple with entering into sexual immorality. And even more so, the fact that we are not our own Lord Jesus is. He has bought us with the price of his own blood. And we're going to celebrate that at the end of this service. Therefore, we should honor God with 
our bodies. And so Paul now is going to turn the corner about sexual intimacy. But he surprises us with this first verse, which, which I call an ascetic opening. An ascetic is a person who, who uh, denies his flesh for perceived higher good. And so he says in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Literally, the Greek says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What does that mean? Why is this, why is this here? The NIV is translated as, it is good for a man not to marry, or the more recent version in 2011, it's good for a man to ha not have sexual relations. But what does it mean? That mean we have no contact. I think Greek antiquity does talk about sexual relation. And the clue here is also in this statement here as he opens up. Now for the matters you wrote about. Paul is responding to a letter that he received from the Corinthians asking for clarification on issues. And abstinence is one of them. There are eight areas where he's going to address issues that they asked about. What they're asking is, is abstinence our right response to sexualities? As we've seen earlier, there's a party in the Corinthian church that are saying, hey, we've got freedom in Christ, we can do whatever we want. We've already looked and said, that's not God's intent for our relationship with Him, nor is it His intent for sexuality. But on the other hand, is there's a group going to another extreme saying, well, again, should we just eliminate sex altogether? They're wondering whether abstinence carries over uh, into marriage. Now, Paul affirms a man not touching a woman as a godly possible option. It's a good thing in singleness. And we'll explore singleness a little bit later in this chapter. And in three weeks, we're going to focus exclusively on that. But we find out that singleness... And marriage are a gift. Each of them is a gift. And they have different ro roles and different rules and behavior. So what follows next is what I call relational recommendations based on your marital reality. And so we're going to start with the proper place for sex. Verse 2. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now again, with the mention of sexual immorality. We might be tempted to view this comment as indicating that marriage is kind of a, a consolation prize for the spiritually weak-willed and less spiritual. And this is not true. Paul holds up marriage as a very high calling, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 30, 33, as wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave themselves up for them. And it's to illustrate the intimacy between Christ and his church. He calls this a profound mystery. But back to marriage. We live in a world that often thinks that more is better. That all variety is the spice of life. And why would I want to set limits on my pleasure? 
But Paul reminds the Corinthians that this gift of intimacy is exclusive. That a man should have his own wife and a, and a woman should have her own husband. That's what makes it special. The place for this intimate expression is in marriage. It's not to be shared with others. And just from a quick snapshot from the Old Testament out of Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 18. Drink water from your own sister. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Sexual fidelity in marriage should be job number one. Men, your wives should know that you're a one-woman man. And ladies... Your husbands, you know that you are a one, uh, one man. <laughs> Let me try it again. Huh. Let me read my, my note. Husbands should know that you're a one woman man. If, and yeah, you're a one. Yeah, you're a one man woman. There we go. Got to reset. But, but in all seriousness, they should know that. And if you're not, you need to. And here's my thing to singles also. Just where we're at as a society. Pornography is so prevalent. I want to tell you that singles, you should start that fidelity now. Because marriage does not fix porn. It does not fix a heart that's gone astray. Because you're relating to a fantasy and not a real person. And when the, the rubber hits the road and life gets hard, that little person gets hard to turn back. You want to go back to that fantasy which you can control. Start now. Start now being faithful to a spouse that you don't know. It brings a lot more security and trust in a relationship. And again, the Lord cares about it immensely. It affects your relationship with Him as well. Remember, we're talking about holy sexuality. Sexuality as unto the Lord. Paul continues charging married believers with what I call the duty of delight. Verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. I don't know how, how you receive the word duty. It's kind of one of those Words like "oh, I have to," and for the person who's the ascetic who who doesn't you know want to indulge the flesh, he believes or she believes that abstaining is better. For the liberal, the thought of having to offer up your body sexually as duty sounds like you can get out of obligation. It lessens the expression like "oh, now I have to." It's obligation, I do uh, duty. This is not so. You know, God commands us to do a lot of things. One of which is to love Him, right? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He does so for our good. I would even dare to say, for our pleasure. When He says to love me, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
it's for our good, for our pleasure, that we might find true joy in Him. Again, my own life verse. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Psalm 73 talks about, Whom am I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Again, when we're commanded to fulfill our marital duty in, in, in marriage, it's for our good. And it meets some, some real needs, right? For, for a woman or a family trying to have children, that's what happens. That's part of the duty. That's what is the result of that. And in that time especially, you wanted to have children. You especially wanted to have a son to give your husband an heir, but also that you might have a son to take care of you later on in life. And also, it was connected to your social standing. But again, it's not just about procreation. God intended this for pleasure. It's to nurture the relationship. Again, I'm going to go back to Proverbs 5. I'm going to continue on at verse 18 into verse 19. Where he says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, and may her breasts satisfy you always, and may you ever be intoxicated with your love, with her love. You can go to the Song of Solomon and find so much sensual language there that's to talk about the relationship between a man and a woman, and it's intended for our pleasure. God made this. This is why I call this the duty of delight. Men, you get to pleasure your wives sexually. Women, you get to pleasure your, your husbands sexually. And it's an obligation to give love rather than to demand love. But what a job description, right? What a great thing. But here's where things kind of hit the fan, right? Men and women are wired differently. They have different needs. An analogy out there that women are like crockpots and men are like microwaves when it comes to just getting sexually aroused. And you have to find out what brings pleasure, what speaks love to them. You have to have that conversation. You have to ask, tell me what's going on in you. Tell me, when do you feel love? Tell me, how can we make our sex more pleasurable for you? And it's not just about that act. There's a book that says, sex begins in the kitchen. It's about your relationship with that person. And there, you know, if this is an awkward conversation to have with your spouse, there's some great tools out there. Great tools. There are books out there. I've got a few in my office. If you'd like me to loan you one, I'd love to have you um, take advantage of that. There's one by Kevin Lehman called Sheet Music. Great book. Great book. Um, there's the there's the five love languages out there. You can go out online and just Google that, and you can take a test and find out what speaks love to you. Because what speaks love to you usually is how you try to express love, and you find out if your wife has or your husband has a different love language, you're trying to speak love, and they're kind of going, hey, thanks, honey, but that's not what speaks love to me. 
I know there's a, a family life today, uh, weekend to remember coming up in March. Jason, raise your hand. So Jason and his wife Heather are representatives for that. If you're interested in that, I would recommend going to see them because it's a great weekend. One of the best things Carrie and I did for our marriage, and I highly recommend it. So just those resources are out there. But we need to have that conversation. You need to learn who your spouse is, what makes them tick, what speaks love to them, learn what their needs are. And along with that, there's the reality of oneness. In marriage, look at verse 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, the first half of this verse was not new for the first century, but the second half was revolutionary. You see, women, men, men had all sorts of claims over women in the first century. But Paul is showing that the wife has a claim over the body of her husband in marriage. The emphasis here is not so much about my authority over your, my spouse, but rather that I'm not free to do as I please with my body. Because my spouse has ownership. And this speaks especially, again, to sexual fidelity in the Roman world. You see, if you were the master of the house, yes, you had mastery over your your wife's body, but you know what else you had mastery over? Your female servant's bodies. And in some senses, in some cases, over the male bodies of, of your servants. That's just the Roman world, right? The master could do whatever he wanted. But in Christ, there's a new ownership. And now you're not free just to do whatever you want. That relationship comes under the headship of Jesus, and now each other has accountability what your spouse's body does with themselves. They're no longer available to help themselves sexually. And this is also based on the reality that, that two become one flesh in marriage. They belong to each other. And the verse that came to mind, it happens twice in the Song of Solomon, where, it said, where the, the lover says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. You belong to each other. So along with that, Paul gives instruction in marriage to do not deprive. And verse 5 says, do not deprive each other. I'm going to stop right there. The word there, deprive, can also mean to defraud. This, again, this is I don't think this is a hypothetical situation. I think this is really going on in the church in Corinth. And, and Spouses were depriving each other of uh, of sex in marriage, perhaps claiming spiritual reasons, putting the flesh to death maybe. But here's the truth, is that sex can be used in marriage to punish and manipulate our spouse. If you don't do what I want to do, I want you to do, if you don't please me, if you make me angry, then I'm going to withhold. And that's not what God intends. Marriage is a, is a place to demonstrate Christ-like love. It should be our best attempt to love, where grace and forgiveness are present. And so to withhold sex, to punish and manipulate, is to defraud in the, in the marriage relationship. And to be withholding in this area 
can tempt your spouse to look for that satisfaction other places. That's not an excuse, but that's just where you're driving that person. That's the temptation you're having on that person. On the other hand, the demand for sex cannot be dictated by just one spouse or the other. It needs to be mutual consent because, again, you belong to each other. And in Christ, listen to this, you ultimately belong to Him. And so it's appropriate times to take what I call a pause for prayer. Second half of verse 5. So you're not going to deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then you can come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession not as a command. You know, self-denial is not a hallmark of our society. We think, why, why would I want to stop doing that? But there are times in one's life where they give up something, they fast, if you will, in order to seek God more specifically in prayer. We can talk about food. We can talk about drink. I think more specifically some of the things that distract us. Maybe social media, electronics, video games. But in this case, it's sex. The energy and attention I may give toward pursuing my spouse, I now give toward pursuing God for a season. And by the way, it was part of the Old Testament consecration and preparation to meet God at the temple. One would not have sex a day or two before they went to meet with God to focus on Him. It reminds us that sex is not the end-all, be-all. You won't die if you don't have sex. You'll be edgy if you won't die. But the most important thing is to seek God above all. However, again, Paul gives practical instruction, it should only be for a season, not a permanent fixture. Because otherwise, Satan looks to take advantage of something that is meant for good. To twist into frustration and temptation and to tempt someone to seek sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Paul's quick to point out in verse 6, he's saying this as a concession, not as a command. There's no schedule, just a helpful suggestion to be considered in your life together as husband. And so now Paul feels free to express what I call his own personal preference Versus God's gifting. Look at verse 7. He says, I wish all men were as I am. That is single. Unmarried. He wrote that in verse 1. He said, I think it's good that a man should not touch a woman. Paul is a single man. Driven by his passion for Christ. That's how he's wired. I mean, he was ready to go at the drop of a hat. All of his life focus was on taking the gospel. And we're going to delve into the practical values of singleness later, as I said. But Paul's not God. And he acknowledges, second half, but each has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one another. Again, not all are called to be married. And not all are called to be single. But each has their own gift. And if you're single 
It is the gift to serve God undistracted by one's own desire. In marriage, it's the gift of a spouse to live a life together that reflects and honors Christ, to know one another in the most intimate way and pointing toward a spiritual intimacy that will be consummated on the return of Jesus Christ. One is not elevated over the other. Each has their own gift. But by highlighting how God has wired him, Paul goes on to give suggestions, what I call suggestions to singleness. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, we'll talk about singleness a little bit later. But to be to the unmarried and the widowed, he wants them to consider this virtue of singleness. Not being a second-class citizen in Christ, but to be fully devoted to Jesus. But also to know yourself. And if sexual desire is a distraction, a temptation to enter into sexual sin, it's better to get married than to try and hold on to an ideal that's not how you're wired. However, just as a matter of practical advice, no one in this room should get married just because of sex. Sex is just one component of marriage. and There's a lot more life to live. But you should know yourself and know your gift. Today, again, we're focusing in on the holy sexuality of marriage, what God intends for good, even for our pleasure. But I'm not naive. I'm not naive to think that this is happening in all Christian marriages. And there are bigger issues sometimes to to deal with of love, trust, and safety, and security. If those aren't present, true sexual intimacy won't take place. You may have sex, but you won't have intimacy. And I'm not naive to know not to know that some of us are coming from a, a past of, a, of abuse, sexual abuse even. And that can scar us. And, and if that's true of you, there is hope and healing, but you need to cry out for it. And if that's something you're going through and you need some resources, I'd love to come alongside of you and point you in the right direction. I don't know that I'm equipped for all that, but I know that God can heal in that situation. But I'm convinced that a lot of this is just blockage due to our inability to communicate with each other, with our spouse, whether we're too embarrassed to ask or we're just lazy or fearful to find out what our spouse's needs and desires are. And married people from this I just want to encourage you to think about how am I pursuing my spouse sexually. And even if you think you've got a healthy sex life, it's always good to engage. And here's the other thing I realize. I'm the pastor, right? God has given me some authority here to preach, but I also know that I'm preaching this from a male perspective, right? And some of you ladies are going, that's easy for you to say, pastor. But this morning, I've asked my wife to briefly address the women of our congregation. I think this is a Titus 2-4 moment where older women are, are called to teach younger women to love their husbands. And gentlemen, we get to listen in, but she's going to be addressing the women of our church. So you might even thank me later. So I'm going to turn it over to my, to my wife here.
and a half years ago, and nobody told me I'd have to give a sex talk to women. That may have been a game changer. <laughs> but here's the deal. I'm sitting down. I'm going to pretend, ladies, that we're having a cup of coffee. So I want that to be um, how we approach this. Guys, you can just be a fly on the wall. But ladies, I'm talking from my heart to yours. Not because Nate and I have it all figured out. But I do feel like, have you ever, have you ever, um, women been to your OB and he's a guy and he's like, now this is what childbirth is going to feel like. And you're like, whatever. You have no idea. And you kind of shut down because of that, right? So when Nathan said, here are the biblical, um, biblical, the biblical outline for sex. I don't want you to go whatever. Because now I'm going to tell it to you so you don't have to say whatever. Okay? So, I don't want anyone leaving today thinking, well, Nathan's a guy. How does he know? So, I want the biblical and the practical to collide. And you ladies know me well enough to know I'm just going to say it like it is. Right? And we're just going to be real about where we're at. It is crazy that God wired us differently and said, here you go. It's going to be awesome. Because sometimes it's not awesome. Am I I not? Something's not working. Am I? Sometimes it's just hard. And sometimes there's times, ladies, where we just have to work through stuff. Don't we? When Nathan said the passage, do not deprive one another, and there's even the word duty in there. Ladies, if your heart hears that word and shuts down, let me encourage you just to stop and acknowledge that feeling and ask God to allow his spirit to begin to shine the light of truth, healing, hope, and restoration into you. Because I know there's a lot of experiences in this room. But I want to speak speak practically, but I'm also keenly aware that there's going to be a lot left unsaid. So like Nathan said, sex is God's idea. It's part of his plan for how we bond in marriage. Sex is not meant to be used as a reward. You want a vacuum because it'll, it'll be good for you later. Don't do that. Nor do you go, if you don't vacuum, you're not going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sex is not meant to be used as a reward, nor the lack of it to be used as punishment. Ladies, we need to understand that for most men, sex is not just a physical need. I think we look at it and we go, it's emotional for us and it's physical for them, but that's not the case. It's not just a physical need, it's also an emotional one. So we need to kind of get our heads around that. Our husbands need to know that we desire them. This affirmation gives men a sense of well-being that carries over into every area of, of their life. It's also one of the ways that he bonds emotionally with you. I want you to think about loving your husband, ladies, as I get to, not I have to. Let me ask you, how often does your husband hear, I'm just too tired? Or how often do you go to bed and do the nonverbal, do we or don't we dance? Do you have sex only when you feel like it? Do you have sex only when you feel like it? I want us to ask that question, ladies, and bring it to the front of how we think about this. So it poses the question, is it okay if sex is sometimes led by choice and not emotion? 
You've all seen that commercial. When the moment turns romantic. And these guys are like hanging curtains or whatever. And you're like, if you wait for the moment to turn romantic before you decide you're going to have sex with your husband, it is going to be a long, cold winter. Because nowhere in that commercial do you see little kids tugging on your leg. Um, they're all like 50 plus people and there are no kids around. I mean, there's just no distractions. So is it okay to say choosing sex with my husband is a choice and not just uh, based on emotion? Of course it is. I'll ask you again, is it okay if sex is led by your choice and not just emotion? Yes. Is it okay to have it put on the calendar in order for it to happen? Yes. Ladies, don't underestimate the power of anticipation. So it sounds like I've just been talking about love as a choice. Making love as a choice. We can all admit that when sex is led by emotion, we don't need to have this discussion. Okay? It just happens. Except that you can be sure that the kids are going to need something in that moment. So they've got radar. Woo! You know what I'm talking about. Mom, go away. So tonight, ladies, when you're in the bathroom brushing your teeth, and I want you to have a conversation with God, not the conversation that says, where did all these wrinkles and gray hair come from? But I want you to have the conversation that says, God, I choose to be thankful for my husband. Give me a heart for him. And honor my desire to choose him. Every day of your life, ladies, you choose your husband. You make a choice. No matter what comes along, at the end of the day, you choose your husband. Jesus, help me to quiet my heart of the noise of the day. Help me to be fully present for him. And just stop, ladies, and get your heart aligned to honor God by choosing your husband. Now, let's be real. There are times when you really are tired and you feel like you can't even see straight anymore. Can we say no and still affirm our husband? Sure. Hey, babe, I love you. Let's take a rain check. I'm wiped out. And husbands, you can usually tell when your wife is wiped out, I'm sure. So, does that sound like homework, ladies? When you're brushing your teeth tonight, you're not just going to be brushing your teeth. You and God are going to have a little conversation. But here's my point. Sex is a big deal for your husband. Maybe. It's a really big deal for him. It's a really big deal for you and the oneness and intimacy in your marriage. God is for you. And he's for your marriage. And he wants your union to reflect your union with him. As you submit to your husband, you're submitting to the Lord. So, ladies, ask the Holy Spirit for the humility and courage to lay this area of your life before him and to give you an ever-growing desire for your husband and the ability to honor God through this area of your marriage. That's my heart. That's my encouragement. So um, I pray that's been helpful for you, ladies. Um, just going to leave it up there. Thanks, Karen. So again, God has given us the gift of sex and marriage. It's powerful enough to create life. It's pleasurable to create bonds and intimacy. 
It illustrates a relationship between Christ and his bride. And when you engage in it as God intends, it honors Christ himself. Indeed, Christ has his own bride. It's the church. It's his people. And he gave up his life for us that we might be his. He wants to know us intimately. He wants us to be his. So we're going to enter into a time of both remembering the cost of what it took for Jesus to buy us for himself. But it is an intimate time where it is communion. It is union with him. Remembering that he has made us part of his body. That we are ultimately destined for an eternity with him as his bride. And so, in this same letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives this instruction. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord 